Welcome back to the Cairo London Podcast. It's Craig McLean here, your host, and today I have a great conversation with Phil Cavell, the author of The Midlife Cyclist. We travel up to CycleFit Studios in central London, and I'm joined by Guy Pearson of Pearson Cycles fame. And Guy, as the ultimate midlife cyclist, is the book's number one fan. So we have like a three-way conversation up in Cycle Fit Studios, and we get into all sorts of things. Uh, In particular, I was interested in chatting to Phil about the cardiovascular uh, chapter, and we get into some discussions around cardiovascular health. and we also get into some hormonal discussions, testosterone in particular for uh, the aging athlete, um, but also talk a bit about the musculoskeletal side of cycling as well. So bike fitting, chiro, osteophysio, uh, and that great term that he discusses a lot um, in the book uh, describing the two different types of cyclist, the micro adjuster versus the macro absorber. So... Uh, and yeah, and towards the very end, we sort of do try and work out why bike fitters and musculoskeletal experts don't really join forces as much as they should. So we've got a few ideas as to how we should be working together better in the future. I'd highly recommend you go out and grab the book. Uh, it's a great read. And we start the conversation off with Phil introducing himself. My name's Phil Cavell. So I'm resident at CycleFit and author of The Midlife Cyclist. Brilliant. That's and it. joining us today is... Guy Pearson, owner of Pearson Cycles, established 1860. <laughs> Brilliant. I think you've been there I, since then, haven't you? I, I have been, I'm the oldest bike shop owner in the world. <laughs> and I'm Craig McLean, the founder of Cairo London, and I have history with both of you guys uh, for many years. In fact, I, uh, although Phil's forgotten... I rode the bike over here that I bought off him in 2008. Um, uh, a, a lovely Colnago jobby. Uh, however, um, we are, where are we located, Phil? We're on the, we would say Covent Garden, but we're probably in Holborn. Okay, and set the scene. What's around us? Because no one can obviously see what's going on. Right, so you're in Studio 2. There's two fit rooms here. Studio 1, Studio 2, imaginatively described. Uh, this is Studio 2. Pre-COVID, we would, Jules would be in there, I would be in here, and we would just be seeing clients. Uh, Post-COVID, this became a workshop where we were just doing key worker bike servicing, and, and then slowly we've been getting back into doing bike fitting, but we only work in one studio right now, so we don't actually have clients in both studios at any one time. Okay. I'm sure that'll happen again, but at the moment we don't. We just run one studio. Yeah. So you're at Cycle Fit in Covent Garden. But we're basically here today because you've written the book, The Midlife Cyclist, um, yeah. of which this actual copy was gifted to me by Guy at the, in the middle of some of his recent injury challenges, of which we hopefully won't get into today. Probably. Let's leave it alone. <laughs> Should we embargo it? So, so, yeah. It's a rabbit hole that's one way. Now, um, uh, Guy's a massive fan of the book, and Phil, I think you've done an amazing job of writing this book, and um, we're not being paid for this in any way, shape, or form. We're just genuinely interested in um, sharing um, some of the contents of this. Because for me, um, and just to get it out there pretty early on, I don't see this as a bike fitting book at all. It's actually, in my 
I was thinking about how to describe it. It's actually a almost like a health and well-being reference for the aging athlete. Um, and it sort of surprised me, or it did surprise me, because I was assuming you were going to be writing a lot about bodies and bikes. And there is that in there. But um, uh, what I love about it is uh, all sorts of deep diving into the human being, the physiology, the anatomy, the sort of the heart, the cardiovascular um, chapter is, is phenomenal. And, um, but yeah, I mean, maybe can you give us a little bit of your, that's my interpretation or brief interpretation of the book. Do you want to describe what you feel it represents uh, for you? Yeah, I can try. If you turn the book over, uh, on the back cover, there's on the back, there's what I wanted on the front cover. So it says, they said to me, what, they asked me, Bloomsbury, what do you want on the front cover? I said, the title. And underneath the title, I want, grow old, get fast, don't die. Uh, and they wouldn't do that. And they said, you just, you just can't do that. And I said, well, that's, that's all everyone needs to know. So... And then they wouldn't do that. So I said, well, you must put it on the back cover then. And so then they came up with the front cover, which was the hand, handbook for the... And it isn't really that, if I'm honest with you. It, the book, if I had to... I would say it's the philosophy of midlife cycling. It's a, it's, a, it's a stream of consciousness discourse about the challenges of cycling into midlife, if you're a man or you're a woman, I, I would say. And you're quite right. It kind of it segues off all over the place and depending on you know, my mental state at the time when I was writing it. So, yeah, you're, you're right. It's, it, it's a str- I think it's probably quite a strange book. I mean, I, when I finished it, I didn't really know what I'd written, to be honest with you, because it, you know, it, it was neither, it's neither a textbook or a reference book or a self-help book. It really is just a, yeah. It's a collection of thoughts, I think, or a collection of things that probably really interest you. Ram- you ramblings. Ramblings, but you yeah. also, you, you went into it in such a great way where you're like, okay, well, I'm really interested in um, the heart and I've got a good friend who's a cardiac specialist. Yeah. Let's have a good conversation with him. And then this is Nigel Stevens we're talking about, who, by yeah. the way, I saw on Tuesday, it's now Friday. As a patient. No, uh, track is back. So indoor, oh, velodrome, Stratford, right. um, the track league has started on Tuesday and he was there racing, I was there racing, and no one died, even though it had been two years since we'd all had 25 people on the track at one time. You never forget. It's just like Did you bike. mention the book to him? I did. So I actually, um, after one of the races, I just went up to him and said, um, congratulations or thank you for your input to the book uh, because uh, you know um, and and he said that he has had a lot of discussion around his input into this book with his I, you know I think it's it's infiltrated into his work too where people yeah. are sort of seeking him out and yeah. presenting him with athletic challenges for their aging heart and more and more I think that's becoming part of his thing because he is in no way shape or form a, a uh, an exercise cardiologist sort of a thing like that's not really his thing like he's a standard cardiologist um, but it's it's evolving to follow his um, his, his interests really I think yeah, right? but, yeah. Um, and, and, and that's in a way that's kind of if you think about the people that are in the book there's Nigel there's Dave Hulse who's a sports he's a team doctor there's Alex Fugalo who you know I think and there's different people who kind of and they're just people I know. I mean, so 
uh, and I sort of treat them like a cast of characters, really. They come on, say something, and they piss off, yeah. you know, stage. So that's really how I thought about them. And, you know, I would speak to them, interview them, talk to them, annoy the shit out of them, you know, frequently. Um, I called Nigel up once and said, Nigel, I need to talk to you. He said, well, like, have you not heard of COVID? It's the middle of COVID. <laughs> I'm like, please, I just need half an hour. And he, so we, I Zoomed him, and he just sat there in his scrubs, you know, on Zoom, eating a sandwich, Obviously, in the height of COVID, it's like, my God, I suddenly realised how much I was, you know, using... So, using does that mean people. that when you, were, when you were writing the book that you had um, a sort of set uh, person in mind that you were writing the book about? Or was it a sort of mythical person? Or was it somebody actually who did exist? Or yeah. a, a number of people? Well, you mean the audience, you mean? Yeah. Yeah, you. Yeah. I mean, I, mean I did for when I read it. I did feel like yeah. you had written it, especially yeah. for me, because yeah. it, there was, the references in it were, you know, every, every single reference sort of rang true with me, and uh, even sort of past experiences and stuff like that that you mentioned, like riding certain, doing certain bike rides and riding in a certain way and doing different types of disciplines and stuff like that, and the sort of feelings and emotions and uh, rewards that you get from those. Yeah. Uh, experiences, um, it all everything rang true with me because you sort of analysed around those things. Um, so I was just wondering if you had actually a, an actual person in mind that you kept sort of thinking about, and um, perhaps it was yourself. No, I don't. I mean, I think no. I mean, certainly, I, I mean, I, I meant that only half-heartedly. I mean, if you think back to our, I mean, you and I, I would do a road race. And I would just end up in a break, and it was, I, it's like, surely Guy's going to be in this break somewhere. And then it'd be, no, it'd be there, you, there you were. Mm. And we looked identical on a bike, so I would look like you looked. I mean, I just, so we'd always be in the break, and you and I would always be the hardest working people in the break, no question. So, you know, you're, yeah. in a way, your history is my history. You know, we actually ended up racing together. So I'm sure you're in some of those races I talk about. I, I bet you're in some of those. So in, yeah. a, in a way, our shared experience is so... It's over, over so many decades, yeah. and we came up through the same system. We did, and we did. We we, uh, and I think it's probably true for a lot of people that, that all those sort of people who are doing those road races and um, events and stuff like that in the maybe the ninety, the early nineties, yeah. going through to the late nineties, and then and then moving into the sports part of the sport, you yeah. know, the sort of sporting, the sportive and the, and the Paris-Roubaix and the Flanders and the, you know, the attack de tours, which you mentioned immediately as a sort of trigger point in the midlife cyclist's uh, cycling career, is that's the sort of turning point, that's the first proper goal, and that turned loads of people into, the, or, you know, actually made people do the sport or gave them their first goal. And uh, we we all did that. You yeah. know, we we went from racing because it was really hard to doing sportives because it was actually relatively easy and you get a better result at the end of it without yeah. the pressure of racing. And um, yeah, and then we sort of followed a, a similar path all the way through, and leading to injuries and other problems that we that you talk about in the book. Yeah. So that's right. So I think you're definitely somebody who I would want to enjoy the book because you could. You know, you could you could relate to a lot of it, but then the other people who I want to read the book are people that are new to the sport, and we don't really want them to make all the mistakes that we made. You know, so those are the people who've maybe sedentary all their life and now come to cycling, mm. and or you know, there there are women who are coming to cycling and sometimes don't find it a particularly possibly a comfortable sport for many reasons, literally in terms of saddle. Or just, you know, it was previously quite a male-dominated sport. So I guess I, 
so I go out my way to talk about women's cycling issues, both from, you know, in terms of cycling in midlife as women with hormonal issues and, and also, you know, bike fit issues, etc. So that, um, I was very conscious to try and make sure that I included, not included, actually, where there was distinctions and the advice was different. Well, let's make, let's make distinctions. And it, sorry, were you going to say that? No, I was just going to, because, uh, um, that was fascinating because obviously I, I didn't realize you guys kind of raced together back in the day. Oh, and yeah, I'm yeah. sure Eastway was one of the places you raced a bit, right? Eastway. We were like um, twins. Yeah. I, you, you couldn't tell us apart on a bike. No, I'm not joking. You, I looked at guys. So I, that's exactly how I look on a bike. It's like, we were like twins, same build, height. But what, what was your favorite bit of the book? What really sort of rung through to you? Or, you know, was it, was it the cardiac stuff or was it the physical stuff? I, th- I found the cardiac stuff quite hard going, actually. I, think, I don't think I actually finished that cardiac chapter. I just I got slightly lost in it, and, yeah. um, and yeah. I thought it's just so I, I and then I've, I'd spoken to Phil during that chapter on an unrelated uh, some, uh, something about something else, and uh, and I'd mentioned about the cardiac, but he said, "Oh, just might, you might want to just move on um, through that chapter," <laughs> and I couldn't wait to get to the next bit, <laughs> and it was fantastic. Um, I, I don't know what it would be. Uh, there are there are so many things that I liked about the book. I think probably the the. Uh, the best bit of all was the very, um, what can I say? It's the, the very caged advice that Phil gives, um, and w- without without sort of saying this is this is what this is how it is. It's, it was a more of a suggestion, but the advice that I could probably quote actually because I wrote it down um, was so incredibly. Uh, uh, it was very notable in my in my experience. Um, Sorry, I'll just find it. <laughs> no, well, you find that, but because uh, you know what's interesting, I'm sure you find it interesting chatting to people who have read it. I found the cardiac stuff amazing, um, and I think it's because of the fact that um, as soon as I read that chapter of the cardiac book, um, I bought a copy and sent one to my friend in Australia, um, who, um, uh, and it's not available on Amazon Australia. It turns out. <laughs> oh. So I just paid for the postage, got it over there, and he had, at the age of 39, a couple of stents put in his heart, right? Um, and uh, I was just sort of fascinated by that idea because it goes back to, we mentioned Nigel already, I was also at that one of those first lecture series you ever did with Nigel um, in a hotel around the corner from here somewhere. Oh, my God. Um, it wasn't here. It was, I think, the original lecture series, which probably was the start of the seed that grew this whole, whole journey, right? Yeah. And my take home from that was it was a packed room again because, you yeah. know, you say, okay, we're doing a lecture series with a cardiologist um, about cycling. And everyone's like, yep, I got to go because everyone wanted the answer to that question. Will my heart explode if I press on the pedals too hard? You know, and so, um, or, you know, if I go too deep, am I going to kill myself? Right. And so then early on in the lecture, I mean, we remember Nigel getting up there and going, okay, let's just set the record straight. There is a self-limiting mechanism within your body that makes you pass out before you uh, explode your heart, right? And if I had this conversation with him two days ago, saying thank you for that bit of advice like 15 years ago or whenever it was, um, and, but the, the collective sigh uh, or sort of everyone then can just relax and start to enjoy that lecture 15 years ago once he's made that statement going, oh, thank God, I can carry on cycling. I know there's no risk of death, well, to a degree. But then, you know, what was interesting on Tuesday is he said, funnily enough, uh, racehorses have begun to um, breed out 
this self-limiting mechanism to the point where racehorses now can explode their own heart as they're actually to the point where, because they don't have that limiting mechanism anymore. So, And I missed that out of the book. I researched this. It's called The Central Governor. Yeah. And I researched this, and I was going to put it in the book. And I don't know why I didn't put it. I can't remember why I didn't put it in the book. You didn't want to scare anybody. No, it wasn't that. I was quite happy to scare people. No, it's not, no, I'm not. But it wasn't that guy. I, it was, the reason was... It's hypothecated, this central governor theory that, you know, and I, I mean, I start the book in the prologue of me passing out on the bike from going too hard. I mean, that's, you know, yeah. so there quite clearly the self-defense mechanism crept in there and I smashed into a chaining fence. But the central governor theory um, that the body will, in a sense, self-limit its, its exposure, you know, it is not, I don't think, proven yet. Um, and then the question, of course, is, is the central governor differently calibrated for men and women if it exists mm. you know is a question that I would have had to have asked and I don't have any evidence for it mm. so the central governor theory is an interesting one but it does seem that there are racehorses that will just will just obliterate themselves yeah, yeah. but then, so then you ask the question well you know if that was the case with athletes with middle-aged athletes or not in middle-aged athletes surely that would be a self-select you know that would be a something that would be selected out wouldn't it yeah you know if if men really would or women push themselves so hard that they fall over yeah Surely that would have been selected out long ago. Or maybe it was. Mm. Um, so the whole central governor theory is interesting. That was a rabbit hole I decided not to go down. Yeah. But I was quite interested at the time in going down that rabbit So hole. did you find your quote? Yeah, so it, it's exactly that subject, actually. So early on in the book, um, you, you, you introduced the midlife cyclist as a pioneer in the human species. And that, and that and as a, you know, as a, as a, as a, an animal that was redefining the aging process or the generational process and stuff like that. And I, because you mentioned it earlier on in the book, I held that thought all the way through the book that all we're doing is just being ambassadors for this, for the, you know, ourselves, for the being, for, for the human species to become or to remain athletic and agile and functional and happy and all those sort of things much, much later in life yeah. than has ever been done before. And um, I did actually do some research around that, and I looked up some um, uh, some research that was done about, you know, like sociological, sociological research that was done about human species and parenting, going into being grandparents and all that sort of stuff. And it's incredibly interesting. Yeah, it's just, you know, we are, we are it's, and it's not even that long ago that we have become this. So it's, it's, you know, in the last sort of 50 years, cyclists have become, been, been able to ride a bike well into their 70s or 80s or something like that because, because the, the vehicle allows you to do it. But it's only like two or three centuries ago that we even were able to be, you know, functioning people at the age of 50 or 60. You know, you'd be dead. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You'd be, you know, you're, 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 you're expired in your, your function as a human because you've brought up your children and then brought them up to, um, to the point where they can then have children and then we're off, we shuffle off because we're not needed anymore. So we just didn't, so we've now broken that barrier and moved on. So I kept that thought all the way through that we were like this sort of, this, this new race, uh, or this new sort of superior race of, of human being. Uh, and I found that very interesting. And I liked the fact that it was applied to the sport of cycling and that, that there wasn't really anything else that it, you know, was, was, would provided a vehicle to do that. 
Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's not, you've not got, it's one generation or two generations because, I mean, your dad was a bit different because he owned a bike shop, but, you know, my dad, all, you know, he, he was a gymnast and a, and a diver when he was a young man. He was a fabulous athlete. But by the time he was 27, 28, that had all gone because he'd had kids, full-time job, and he never excited again, you know, really, nor did my mum. And he smoked and he drank a lot. And, you know, and, but, and that's, that's typical of somebody yeah. born in the 1930s. That's a couple of generations. So yes. It, it, it's, you haven't, you've only got to go about one generation or two generations, and we've broken that link. We're absolutely pathfinders, crash de- test dummies for this grand experiment. Yeah, and I feel, I feel very proud about that. Yeah, quite right. I feel, right. I feel, like, feel you know, actually proud about that, and, it, and it's sort of inspiring to continue and, you know, go after this quest of breaking all the boundaries. Yeah, and, and, quite right. And I agree, I agree with and you. And carrying on riding my bike until... Especially until as the owner of a bike shop founded in 1860, where basically, you know, uh, I yeah. guess the clientele were not over 50 back no, then. No, so back at, you know, when, when, when bikes... Exactly, yeah. I mean, you would be riding a bike in, in your, you know, you're in your late teens or early 20s, and then that would probably be about it. You would move on to something else, like, that's probably why riding a horse to you, you know. Yeah, well, exactly. The, the, the horse or the bike. <laughs> and back to the back to the will I die chapter, which is it's interesting because you know you both had different reactions to it, and that's exactly what I found. It is the book's calling card in a way because it's a chapter I wrote first, uh, and um, so it and it is the it's double it's literally double the length of the second longest chapter. Yeah. It's the longest chapter by far. Yeah. It was the hardest to write by far. Um, and, you know, I was consulting with four different cardiologists, two research cardiologists and two treating cardiologists, of, what, of which one is Nigel. Um, and so in a way, it's the book's calling card. But if you're not interested in it, you can just literally go from chapter two to chapter four. Yeah. And people do. I know people do. And people have said to me, look, I can't get through chapter three. I just, it's too much. And I totally get that. But in a way, I also had to write it and put it down. Well, let's... For those that like an audiobook, uh, let's, I wanted to ask, uh, let's get some detail out of that chapter, which will be hopefully easy to digest, right? Because I've got a couple of questions about that. But I think also why I found it interesting was because I was a subject in one of those studies you were talking about, although I don't think the exact one you were talking about, but I went through another in St. George's Hospital. Um, they were looking at cardiac hypertrophy, you know, and yeah. um, relative to the aging person, where having a larger heart is a disease state because the heart has to work harder to pump blood through a fibrotic set of lungs, basically. Um, And then there's the aging athlete and hypertrophy of the cardiac tissue in the aging athlete, you know. So they were just doing, uh, they needed some control athletes who were exercising or cycling uh, more than 10 hours a week. And I went through all those sort of processes of like, um, MRI, cardiac MRIs, and uh, ultrasound, wild, <laughs> lying on my side kind of thing, ultrasound um, while pedaling. <laughs> so they can actually have a look at what your heart was doing as you were trying to sort of pedal a bike lying on your side. Mm. So, um, and they needed to lie you on the side because then the heart falls against the um, chest cage or the rib cage and they can see the heart better. Oh, better reading. Yeah, because mm-hmm. if you're less sitting up, it just disappears back. Yeah. Who led that study? Who was, who was, who was leading that study? Was it I, San, wasn't Sanjay Sharma, was it? 
No, it was an Irish woman, though, um, who was a... But I think she was just like a one of the junior doctors doing all the work for... Mm. Um, but, you know, I just found that really quite interesting. Mm. But the other thing I found interesting is that, that idea of I always had my um, in my head, and, and this is still my... Um, what I state constantly is that I can kind of eat and do what I want because I've got this like permanent like high pressure blood flow through my lungs, or sorry, through my heart, which means that there is not going to be anything attaching to those coronary arteries and therefore I won't get any plaques, which is complete fallacy. But yeah. in my own head, that's what I'm thinking that I'm actually doing. Well, keep going with that then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, hence I did 171 beats a minute for five minutes on the velodrome on um, the Tuesday night. So thankfully, I don't think there are any blockages. But um, you never know. But thankfully, I also did this cardiac MRI, so I know there are no blockages. Um, uh, however. Tell us that story because I, you always say that exercising is good for your heart, right? However, you found some variations to that um, idea, haven't you? I, I didn't find the variations. Um, the book really was a response to stuff I kept reading in the press where you'd read something one day, you know, exercise is good for you, you know, and then you'd read something the next day, too much exercise is bad for you, or then exercise in you know, middle-aged people... Um, being harmed by exercise. So there was all this stuff out there. Um, and it was, it was like, like the whole alcohol thing. One drink's good for you, but two drinks is fatal. It's like, it's all this contrary advice that's out there. And this didn't make any sense. So, you know, and I've got clients who are, a lot of my clients here are and were coming to the sport totally fresh. You know, as Nigel Stevens says, exercise silent or exercise naive. Their bodies have been silent for years, decades. And so I was concerned for them, concerned about them. What was the best advice? What should they be doing? And they were asking me for a coach and they were asking me for, you know, all this. I was, in a way, the gate, or we were the gatekeepers. For their, they wanted to do the attack. They wanted a bike. And then we'd put them in contact with somebody who could take them to the attack or we would take them to the attack. So we were gatekeepers. We were responsible. You know, we were, <clears throat> we were enabling this passion they had. So almost like we had a response. I had a responsibility. We had a responsibility to find out. So we, that's when we started doing the lecture series and we would connect with people. Nigel was already a client of mine anyway. So we were in a unique position to find out. So uh, talking to Nigel, and as you said, Nigel lectured here several times. And then I, re- and then I, then I actually made contact with the people who were running these projects, Gemma Parry-Williams um, and Amma Magani, and made contact with them. And they were just charming people. Amber Magani then lectured here after Nigel. Um, that lecture was fascinating. So I was going back to the source material and saying, well, where are the contradictions? Um, and what do they mean? And so that, that's why, the, in a sense, that chapter is the book's calling card. Because that's the, the question I wanted to answer first. Before I answered anything else, I wanted that one answered. And then we could go on to other things. So, um, so there were these contradictions that it seemed that exercise was almost certainly, and almost certainly is, overwhelmingly beneficial. Cognitively, cardiovascular, general health, everything, diabetes, blood pressure, um, you know, insulin resistance, every indicator, exercise is good for you, and generally speaking, more is better, I would say. That's my general opinion, and that seems to be the general opinion. However, within that, there seems to be these slight anomalies and contradictions. What do you think drives those contradictions? What, 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 if it's such a given that exercise is good for you, even in later life, what, 
would drive somebody to find some little holes in that theory? And that's the golden question. And I, that's the question I try and answer. If you'd read the chapter, you'd know. But the... the I did. If you'd uh, finished... That cardiac. <laughs> if you'd finished... So it's, the good, it's, the, it's the best question. And the answer is it's probably multifactorial. It might be genetic. People have got genetic... So family history is a massive thing here. My father had a heart attack at 63. You know, um, and he didn't die of a heart attack because he had a double bypass operation. But he had his and his father died at... 60 of a heart attack. So there's, you know, I've got those genes. Family history is a big predictor of, and that's why when you go to the GP and doctor and they say, you know, it's always, when they're doing your curious score, the first big one is genes, family history. Do you have, does you have a, do you have a family history of coronary heart disease? Yes, I do. Okay. So now let's take that to the next step. So that's one. Secondly is lifestyle. And thirdly is history. What, how much exercise you've done up to this point. And the other big one, of course, is sex. Women seem to be better protected against these issues than men. And that, to me, is one of the startling things in the book that I hardly ever get asked about doing podcasts and interviews. No one's really asked me about that so far. What, you know, women seem to be uniquely protected from coronary heart disease, middle-aged, middle-aged athletes. I mean, it's, it's unbelievable. So, there's, so genetics, family history, lifestyle, exercise history, and sex. To, you know, the one more thing in there that I want to pick up on, though, is that whole concept around inflammation of the heart there, right? Yeah. And, and this bizarre thing that uh, I don't think this has been, you know, it's a lot of theory out there yeah. at the moment, too. But that's one of the reasons as to why if you exercise over 10 hours a week, you are effectively creating this kind of low-level inflammation within the cardiac tissue, which then creates different functioning to a certain degree, isn't it? And that's one of the theories behind why exercising too much almost has a negative impact on the actual structure of the heart, doesn't it? Yeah, so and this is absolutely right. We're to the heart of the matter. And if, if I could revisit the book, and if, if I ever revisit the book, I would do a chapter called Inflammation. Yeah. Because it's like, it's, it's like Eskimos have more than one word for snow, hundreds of words for snow, because they all mean different things. We need hundreds of words for inflammation. The word inflammation is so misleading because it, you know, inflammation is good in one sense. Exercise is acutely inflammatory and chronically anti-inflammatory. That's, so we rely upon that. So inflammation, it, it all comes back to inflammation, but we need more than one word. We need more than one definition. Mm. And if I think about the book, I try and describe and define inflammation. I really do, several times. I'm not sure I ever get there. But you're absolutely right. Yeah. And is it some? And then Gemma Parry Williams in the last chapter speculates with me: Is there something about the way that men manage, don't manage their inflammation burden, and women do manage their inflammation burden? And she posits that as a very valid question, and that's why I picked up on it. And it's like, you know, who knows? But it's definitely worth discussing. You know, how many times do you find yourself too many coffees, too many glasses of red wine, very, very stressed at work? And what the hell, I'm going to go out and do a criteria more, you know, try and beat my FTP. It's like, well, you know, is that the right, is that the correct environment to do that hard effort at 59 years old? No, of course it's not. It's just absolutely not. If you're going to do one of those hard efforts, you know, for, for God's sake, try and reduce every other tension and inflammation in your body, in the substrate of your physical being, before you go and do it. It's obvious. It's obvious, but it's not obvious because so many of us do it. But I bet you it's obvious for women because I'm potentially thinking that it's physiologically programmed to those maternal 
protective instincts that they maybe have that the sort of the the continuation of the species wouldn't be that great if yes. um, women possibly went out and did all that crazy stuff after, you know, and admittedly, I'm sure they do, but it's like um, there's probably a level of that protect, protectiveness of the species associated with that. You know? Well, which, might, which does mean that um, if women don't need to be told, the men do need to be told, which is why you pointed it out in the first place, that you do need to listen to your body and understand your state of mind and your state of health before you go and do something absolutely nuts, like a 120-mile bike ride or something like that, because it's just not going to do you any good if you're in the wrong state of mind. That's it? right. And, and I, I picked that up quite a lot through the book. There were lots of references to being in the right place um, or just getting yourself in the right place or being, even being conscious of where you are in your life and what your body can do well and those sorts of yes. things. That was, really, that was very, very interesting. This is why I think you, you wrote the book for me, by the way. I did. Um, and... Uh, <laughs> Yes. So on, on that as well about men and women, um, I, the other thing I wanted to sort of talk to you about was testosterone, right? Um, which kind of links in with what you're saying about women and that estrogen effect perhaps of protectiveness. Um, but I, I'm always interested in uh, your opinion about, because I had a trip to the States a couple of years ago and it appears as though everyone over the age of 50 in the US is on testosterone for... Uh, I don't know if you know, but it's like um, for medical slash um, um, uh, cosmetic reasons. Are you serious? It is a thing, right? And it is over there big time whereby you just turn up to your GP, you list a set of different symptoms, um, and they go, oh, well, I can prescribe you testosterone. Um, Or if you can't, because you're paying for healthcare over there anyway, a lot of these guys, there are businesses over there that just... Uh, you pay a monthly subscription to get your testosterone, right? Um, and as a result of that, um, a couple of the guys I was uh, doing some business with over there were on it, and they were literally listing the fact, you know, you could see the fact that they were like, yep, we can party hard, we can just get really good sleep, we can, um, you have a look at them, and their muscle, their shape is like, you know, developed more than you would expect a 50 plus year old to be who maybe doesn't go, you know, is not a gym junkie, but they just look toned. Um, and then they'll talk to you about their sex drive as well, but we won't get into that. But, um, but you know, and then I'm thinking if that is just so readily available over there and you, you do, you mentioned testosterone um, quite a bit or yeah. a bit in there as well. And, and how, you know, your theory is, is it a great idea to kind of, drop a Ferrari engine into a 1960 Cortina um, uh, for very... Me and Phil both are for 1960s Cortina. He's <laughs> <laughs> you know, two-door, I'm a four-door. Well, I, I think it was a Triumph Herald, wasn't it? I think mine was a Triumph Herald. Um, that, yeah, that's right. I mean, I'm not sure about my... I'm not sure how met- valid my metaphor is. I mean, I leave it as an open-ended question, but, I mean, that, I'm stunned by that, Craig. I mean, I'm stunned by that. But do you think, as as a healthcare person, do you think that that's necessarily risk-free for them? Well, no, it's not risk-free. And and you're the one that states the fact that with testosterone supplementation or addition, you run the risk of cardiac disease, um, prostate um, problems, um, all sorts of things, you know. Um, 
But no, it's, it's not risk-free, but I think they weigh out the benefits versus the risks and they see the benefit of... Um, but it's like a little bit of a different culture over there, isn't it? You know, it's like um, the number of people with the, um, the full pearly whites redone, you know what I mean? Or even teeth whitening and, um, you know, all this sort of stuff, uh, hair stuff, you know. Um, you know, that, all, all of that is, is a, just a different thing because the... the the, the healthcare system over there is very much driven by the consumer as opposed to over here. It's, it's sort of driven by what is available through the NHS. And okay. also what is probably nece- absolutely what is necessary, necessary. What is to affordable. keep you alive, to yeah, keep you yeah. healthy. You know? Well, because we don't, yeah, so over there they're prepared to throw money at it because they have to. And, yeah. uh, and so I probably think if they're going to do that, then they might as well get something that obviously, obviously is physically enhancing or. But it's, it's terrifying from an, um, a master's athlete um, that I turn 50 next year and, um, you know, um, I, I've certainly never been tested once in competition or out of competition um, and I could be doing all sorts of things. Yeah. Um, you know, my, my internal philosophy prevents me from doing any of that stuff, but it's like uh, surely there's got to be a bit of that going on because the chances of you... Um, getting found out is pretty low. There's, uh, it's quite likely that there's people doing it just to do, you know, get a bit of StravaCom. Yeah, but, <laughs> but you know, <laughs> but, but if they're doing it in the US um, just for cosmetic reasons, you know, there's got to be a bit of that going on. Um, but, but I mean, if it really genuinely has no negative health consequences, I'm like, that's fine. I'm, you know, I come at this from a health perspective. Mm. You know, our testosterone, I'm 60 almost in a few months' time. So my testosterone levels now compared to when I was 30 are, you know, like a very small mollusk level. Yeah. You know, so, it, <laughs> you know, they're minute, you know, but it just doesn't feel like it's safe. I've got family, I've got responsibilities to start mm. turbocharging. I mean, in, I, in I, the book, Phil, you don't actually mention sex drive at all. I don't, I don't, I very rarely talk about it, Guy. No, is, is that Should work? we talk is, about it now? Well, yeah, we probably should. I mean, do you think is this that, a therapy session? Or, yeah. uh, I mean, I'm going to lie down. Hold on. <laughs> I mean, I, I did, I did, it was noticeably absent, I thought, um, about yeah, sexual activity or sex drive. You just kept looking for that chapter. And I did. I was, thinking, I was thinking it might, it might be at the very back <laughs> or just on the top shelf. Uh, you've got to be a member uh, to get that special chapter, right? Um, and say a small fee per month to subscribe. So, yeah. Funny enough, I know you're joking, but do you know what, though? The ne- the, I will, I, honestly, because I'm, the, the next time I do anything like this or I revise that book, I am going to put a, a little chapter in there about pelvic floor dysfunction, uh, which sexual um, dysfunction comes in, obviously, because it's an early sign. Mm. Um, so I, I, you're probably right, actually. I probably should have mentioned more. But, you, you know, you're curate, when you're writing about it, you're curating. You can't, you can't put everything in. You've got to leave... You're right. I mean, there's other stuff that people say. Why did you not mention... You know, I didn't mention eating disorders. Mm. And um, I did an American interview, and the, and the interviewer was saying, well, you know, why would you not mention eating disorders in, in relation to... Nutrition. So it's a good point. I didn't mention it because it, I didn't think of it. You know, it's, it's a simple answer. Um, um, what you did mention, and we should divert back into. Sorry. Um, no, no, but um, 
Because a lot of that stuff is brilliant with regards to cardiovascular and all that sort of stuff. But I think the other thing to bring it back into what maybe people might think this conversation was going to be about, <laughs> all right. which is somehow about the human body, perhaps, uh, and the frame and the musculoskeletal side of things, though. But um, I don't think anyone I've seen has kind of um, put it so eloquently, that idea of micro-adjuster versus macro-absorber. Uh, it's not my... That's, again, I've stolen that. That's okay. I thought it's you the first time that I read it, so, so I, um, I presume that was you. No, I think I credit it in the book. Did you? No, you did. Um, I credit to, to Phil Burke. Oh, Phil Burke. Yeah, yeah. yeah. because uh, is, it, did he come up with that, or yeah. is it just no, an no, industry thing? Or? No, he came up with it. It, it has become an industry thing. It's become an industry thing. I mean, Phil Burke is, you know, I mean, I mentioned him in the book a couple of times, and it, he, yeah. he came up with that concept um, for a... Um, um, uh, a first of our symposiums we ran. Did you come to those? I think I did, yeah. It was sort of after the Nigel one, then there was like three of them or something in a row. We had a, we had a three-day symposium at the um, design... Oh, yeah, no, I went to that one with what, Adam Woolley. Yeah. So Phil Burt, that he came up with the macro-absorber, micro-adjuster for that um, symposium. Because okay. he, he was... In fact, Nigel, he, he spoke immediately before Nigel. So Nigel... Nigel yeah, so, and then Nigel got up and said, geez, I don't really want to follow that talk, quite rightly, because it was a really good talk. Mm-hmm. And Phil came up with the concept of that for the talk. And I just bring it up in the book and discuss it. And then I overlay it with the, the theory of, you know, somebody who's hypermobile versus somebody who's really stiff. And then yeah. if you bring those, overlay them together, what, you know, does that give you an extra insight into, you know, how someone's going to function on a bike? And I think it probably does. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know yourself, it's your, I'm now in your back garden. You know, if someone's hypermobile, they present with different issues than somebody who's, you know, like a, you know, like an iron bar. But you pulled that together really well too, though, and sort of, you know, saying that um, it's not the same spectrum, right? Um, no. Hypermobility and stiffness yeah. um, is not on the same spectrum. You know, if you're you're not a micro adjuster if you're this or that. Correct. Um, but you did say it's the extremes that tend to be the extremes of either stiffness or mobility are the micro-adjusters, and those guys in the middle are the macro-absorbers. And yeah. I think it makes a lot of sense when you think about that, you know. Um, yeah. And, it's a, and, he, and if somebody who's working with somebody and you're trying to make them functional, like, like we all do here, mm. in our, our jobs is to make people functional, if you think of different ways to, you know, in your head, triage it, it kind of, it can, it can give some insight, you know. And I guess most of my clients, a lot of my clients, are micro-adjusters, although they wouldn't be here. The micro-absorbers, I don't see them, Yeah, frankly. No, and I love that story of you, uh, Mark Cavendish, who loves to have his seat adjusted a millimetre halfway through a stage because his body changes over five hours, you know. Um, that, that's the, the ultimate micro-adjuster. Or he'll be there changing his cliques, um, literally at the start line, you know. Um, and then at the other end of the spectrum, there's a story of um, Gary Thomas getting a spare bike off the roof of the car and it wasn't his I think that's true and he, yeah it was and it was through his bike and the saddle was like five centimetres too high and he didn't notice <laughs> so ultimate ultimate um, you know ultra macro absorbing yeah. and I'm, I'm a macro absorber myself you know and I, I think like that guy was I, I was now I'm a, now I am a micro adjuster I, yeah I mean my, my I am the ultimate macro absorber I reckon there's also those macro absorbers who just ignore all the crap and then it finally catches up with them you know yeah. what I mean um, so when I did my this, when I did my injury um, I spoke to Phil and I happened to be reading the book as well but I spoke to Phil and Phil was very very quick to work out a lot of the things from what just from what I was saying 
that were already a thing. Because in my mind, it wasn't even a thing. I didn't understand my injury. I had an inner hip injury. It turned out to be a label tear, but it, it, it was lots of other things going on at the same time and I had incredible pain. Phil just nailed it straight away. He just mm. said, yeah, you've probably got this, probably got that. And the reason you've got this is because you have spent your entire cycling career not listening to anything from the neck downwards. <laughs> anything, just, you know, you just push it. Any pain, any red flags that pop up, you just put it behind you, press on through, and that's why after 40 years of riding a bike with your back flat, um, this something has happened. And it was like, you're right about that. Of course, you're right about that. So Phil, um, answer me this though, and you've, you, you always come, or that there was always this conclusion at the end of, I went to a couple of those symposiums you did, and the conclusion was always, because within the crowd, there was inevitably the selection of bike fitters, and then there was a selection of physio, chiro, osteo, medico um, people as well, right? And then the two of those would come together and listen to the whole presentations and they would always come to the conclusion of, we really need to work better together yeah. because a bike fit by itself is not an answer and going to a chiro by itself is not an answer. Um, so here's the question, why are there not, and maybe there are, like combined clinics doing the same thing you know what i mean because it appears to be everything stays separate you know um and i know you've had over the years probably some people consulting out of here or do you still have a physio or osteo here or no? we don't we have we we, we have we, at one time here we employed two physios we had two physios working here who were dual skilled bike fitters physios they found it we found it very difficult to combine those things. They, in they, fact, Morgan was one of them, right? Yeah, so Morgan yeah. worked here for, for many years. Yeah. Um, and Morgan, you know, he just defaulted to doing bike fitting. I mean, you are, you, and when you, it was almost like he didn't want to have that relationship with the client where he stopped being their bike fitter and started being their physio. Yeah. It never seems to work very well if you're doing two things. So we never got that quite right. They became, both him and Sean, became really good bike fitters. Um, and um, at the time, we also had a relationship with Phil Burt up in Manchester and also our physio up there called Dan. So we had four physios on faculty at one point. And we never found a way to use them properly. And it's funny, because I was talking here yesterday. I had a meeting here with Nicola Roberts, who I'm sure you know Nicola. Yeah, yeah. Yep. And she and I talked about the same thing. It's always been difficult to find that right um, relationship between the physical therapist and the, and the bike fitter. But I, I totally agree with you. It's in my best sessions, the best working days are when you're working in a multidisciplinary team. So when we got a physio here and then Mick, the podiatrist, those are the best days. Yeah. But, you know, when you're bringing to bear everyone's wisdom and expertise, to make that happen in a clinical environment, uh, we've never managed to get that right yet. I think I'd, I'd, I have attempted that as well. We, yeah, you we, have. We, we originally, right. when we, when that's we, right. when Nicole we and Nicole, various different people, various yeah. different physical yeah. therapists who worked alongside us, getting the integration right yeah. was impossible. It, it, no matter it which, be, which it, it shouldn't be because that, that we went, we set out to strive to have this, you know, beautiful uh, physical therapy department yeah. backing up. The, the bike fitting and then sort of vice versa and working collegially along each, alongside each other. It never happened once. I don't think it actually ever happened once. Yeah. So I, it, it just did, it just did not work. So I, uh, so Craig, if you, if you 
um, are asking the question why you know what is the sort of relationship between the sort of bike fitting uh, community and the physical therapy type community what is it that you found in the book that you would take with you and maybe alter or be influenced by in your practice well within with just that whole general concept though is trying to work harder on actually getting the communication between the two professions um, better really um, because the everyone needs it right everyone like anyone who comes for a bike fit should will need an element of physical therapy right um, and there is also then probably a little bit of an argument of like well in an ideal world someone would come in they would be triaged into what is most important at the time right so if they've got an immediate event that you know they probably need to be in a better position on their bike you know um, however if they've got more of a chronic problem then maybe the idea of actually well let's work with the body for a six-month period before we even bother getting you onto a custom bike because um, you know what you you may have to make some adaptations to the fit at that particular time but six months down the track from now you're probably able to get into a much better position and be it more aerodynamic more functional more whatever because then you can resolve some of those problems of not you know being actively silent or however you described it before um, uh, so you know trying to work together in some sort of better way was um, you know but it's, uh, yeah, I think my real question here was actually what what influence from what Phil has written would you take with you uh, as a therapist yourself and be influenced by in terms of the way you, that now you will practice? Is there anything that you would do differently having read the book or be influenced by? So I think... Um a lot of physical therapists get into this cookie cutter idea of looking after patients, if you know what I mean, sort of the same sort of a thing for everyone. Um, physios quite often do it by saying, you need to activate that glute. <laughs> the number of times I've heard that, you know. Uh, chiropractors are guilty of it by saying, you just need your back crunched, you know. Um, and. Um, uh, you know, uh, maybe osteopaths, because this is kind of the, the difference between the very simple version of what is the difference, by the way, that I tend to say is that osteopaths are, are bone muscle specialists, chiropractors are bone nerve specialists, and physios are more into that rehabilitation um, activation side of things. So, you know, when you're looking at the spectrum of hypermobility through to real stiffness, um, it's you know, different things work for different people, you know. Um, probably that hypermobile person will definitely needs more activation and strength work than the person, and that's the thing that you I do cover. I think you do cover in the in the back section there. One of the last um, towards the end of the book is where you're talking about what should be done with the very inflexible person and what should be done with a hypermobile person, and you actually give a a list of things to do, I think, don't you? Where it's like, you should be doing strength work as a hypermobile person. You should be doing more flexibility work um, as, as someone who's super stiff. You know? um, so that's the sort of stuff I take home from it. Um, would, it, would, it be, would it be something about the, you know, if you were treating a midlife cyclist, which I'm sure you do lots of, mm. um, would there be, you know, are you sort of better equipped now that you've read the book to perhaps understand some of the challenges that they might be facing. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've always sort of made that statement, you know, but, but also just 
putting that that um, putting the the, the macro uh, absorber micro adjuster model over the top of everyone, right? Because yeah. I've quite often said I have no idea how people ride a bike without a chiropractor in their back pocket, right? Because it, you know, obviously I am a chiropractor. I'm biased, and I'm on the table all the all the time myself, just trying to keep movement in my own spine, right? And I obviously collect a whole series of cyclists into my practice as well, and they are doing the same thing, where they're regularly just on the table looking after themselves, not because they are in pain, but because they just want to maintain movement to be able to stay in that position, you know? Um, yeah, so, um, but no, I, I, I think, uh, yeah, that's some of the stuff that... Yeah. Um, that, the micro adjuster, micro absorber model is very, very useful for mm. the bike fitting community. It's it, it's 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 quite high on your mind when you even embark on a bike fit because the the feedback from the customers you do rely on um, with a macro absorber, uh, they the feedback is inconsequential because you know you could put the saddle three foot higher than it would be and say how's that and they would say oh that's fine and then you put it right down so that their knees are next to their ears and then that would be fine as well so you then are then you're relying heavily on your own interpretation of that person Mm -hmm. to try and find that position that lovely sweet spot and uh so you you rely less on the uh feedback and then at the other end of the spectrum you tend to sort of you get too much feedback from the micro adjuster and every tiny change is a catastrophic difference uh, which then floors the whole process and suddenly you find yourself three and a half hours in thinking I'm just going to move him up one millimeter and I'm just going to stop so <laughs> and that's it and so yes it's, it's quite but it's those are two two extreme cases most people fall between them actually most people fall between them. yeah the, the, the micro adjuster and the micro absorber actually are two fairly rare um, extreme cases and then most people are on some sort of spectrum between those two so we've been rabbiting on for a yeah. little while now um, no but um, is there a uh, I wanted to sort of the how's the book sort of how, how's it affected things here? Are you getting more people inquiring or are sales going okay? Where can you buy the book um, anyway? Oh, you can. I mean, you can. I think you can buy it everywhere. Amazon. Um, they had. They didn't have stock, but I think they have stock now. You could buy it here. If you buy it here, of course, I'll sign it for you. Um, buy it in bookshops. I don't know how. I mean, I know it's been reprinted three or four times, so um, I, it's probably quite a good sign. Mm. Uh, how it's how it is affecting things here. We're, we're busy, but we're always busy. I, people, a lot of people mention it when they come in, yeah. and I think a lot of people in the you know have read it and are know somebody who's read it. And so there's a lot of a lot of opinions out there, and that's great. And, it, and I think that's what I would say about the book is I did write this book as an invitation to converse. It really that's how I intended it. That's kind of how I wrote it. Like, let's provoke and start some conversations around this. Not everything's known. Much isn't known. But let's start some conversations. I, I, that's, I wanted the book to start a conversation, a civilised, friendly, you know, irreverent on occasions conversation about the challenges of midlife cycling. That's what I wanted. It's not like this is how it is. It's not, you know, it's not a prescription. It is a conversation. And that's why it's written like it is. And I think 
from what I can see, that's what's happening. People are engaging with it on that level. I don't really read any of the reviews. Reviews. I don't really. My wife reads all the reviews and tells me, "Right, don't, I don't want to know." <laughs> don't tell me. I don't care. Well, I do care, but I don't want to know. It's like it's it's out there. I've given birth to it. It's out there in the world. I can't. I can't control what people think. So there's no point in engaging with it on any level whatsoever. Did you write? Did you? When did you decide to write the book? How long ago? Oh, a long time ago. And the, so was lockdown the, the, the sort of inspiration or the, the excuse to write it? Yeah, yeah. My editor just said, you've been talking about this. I know you've written a lot already. I'm just telling you, either write it now or don't write it. But, you know, yeah. like, this, is, this is the 11th hour. Yeah, most people just decorated their house during lockdown. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you, you wrote, you Infinitely preferable guys. <laughs> <definitely. laughs> I'll get you around to do that. Um, yeah, it's just, it just I had the opportunity. I had all the research. I'd, you know... Um, Sat down with Emma Magani and had some sort of conversations and taped the conversations and you know I, I had these you know you, so the, the opportunity was there. It was a unique opportunity. I had all these people at my fingertips to talk to and they were all so generous. And then the people I didn't have, I found. So like um, Professor Goulder, who I quote in the book, you know, I heard him on the radio one morning. I said, "My God, you're you're overlapping me." So I called him up immediately. It was lovely. Spoke to him, wow. emailed backwards and forwards, and then he contributed what he contributed to the book. So. You get into that mindset of like, you know, you're kind of curating, you know, so you're just living it in that moment, those few months, I was just living it, curating it, and hear something, read something, see something, and then it's like, it overlaps what I'm doing. It's like, and then, but what Nigel did say, he gave you a big compliment on um, the other day, saying that it's a very conversational style and the way that you um, write the book, and it's very easy to read, but he said that, so you obviously haven't been a bike fitter for your entire life. Is there some history there of writing in your past? Yes, yeah, I, I was. Yes, I had done some writing before, so. Uh, but not like not journalist, journalistic. No, no, yeah, I had done some cycling-related journalism before okay. yeah. a long time ago. So yeah. I, you know, it was. Yeah, they, you I just picked up some of those. Yeah, stories. yeah, mm. yeah, um, and so, so the, yeah, the, yeah. The it it helps if you know if you know Phil because you can just hear him talking as he's yeah. as you're excited and hear the style of your. This is the, I, this Your is, conversation. I, this is what, this narrating is the, it to me. This is the thing that worried about, the worried me, Guy, you say that. Because some people said, you know, like some people like Guy, friends who I've known for a long time, said, like, <laughs> I, read the, I, read the, I read the book, I like it. And I, my question mark was always this Would you have enjoyed the book if you didn't know me? And several people came back to me and said, and I think even Guy said, I don't know. Possibly. No, I, I, I don't know, but probably not. Ah, see, and that's it, uh, probably not as much. That dismays I, me. I would definitely. That dismays me. I, I probably wouldn't have read it in the first place no. because I don't read books anyway. I just, oh, okay. I'm, I'm not that person to read. I never read any books. I'm and just, I can imagine you. I used to read a lot. And if you did read a book, you probably wouldn't read about bike fitting. No, I would read about. Uh, yeah, I'd read a uh, you know a horror or yeah. um, or a, a crime story. Or well, chapter three is a horror. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but look, uh, is there anything else you wanted to cover before we wrap up? Um... No. No, other than uh, it's been lovely to talk to you both, lovely to see you both. See, that's the great thing about doing the book is that we wouldn't have sat here in this room on a Friday afternoon, would we? No. So that's, what it's, that's what's nice, isn't it? That, you know, it starts conversations, and I, li- I like that. And, but I never answered your question, and I think it was a really, really good question. What's the right balance and what's the right environment for bike fitters to work with physical therapists? And, I, and as you were talking to Guy and Guy, I was thinking about that. There is a structure out there. 
and I think that we have to strive to get towards it. So we, we interact on different levels, academic, training each other, working with each other, inward referral. And it has to be quite a formal structure. Because if it's not formal, you end up with what Guy said and what my experience is, it doesn't seem to work. So you actually just need to stru- have quite a formal structure. And then within the formal structure of in- inward referral to each other, you then need to have the, Craig, I just need you for a 30 second look, see. Come in, please come in. And then you come in. It's loose enough where you can come in and say, I can give you two minutes. You give me two minutes. You give me your input. And then you waft out and see your own clients and patients. Mm. That's the perfect, that is the perfect structure. And then said, okay, so Craig's given us his input. I totally agree with what he's saying. I suspected it, but he's confirmed it. So then now the correct trajectory is you spend six sessions with Craig mm. and then you come back. Craig does exactly the same thing where he gives us five minutes together or 10 minutes together, and then you're back with me. Mm. That is the perfect structure, but it actually needs to be more formalized than we think. Yeah. Uh, but that is the perfect way to do this, where, you know, and then, then every second Thursday, we have an in-staff training where you say, okay, guys, and then you train us, mm. and then next time we train you. So we're always trying to refresh each other's skills and find out where the gaps are. Mm. And it's the bloody gaps that are infuriating, the gaps in what you do and the gaps in what I, I do. Mm. is those gaps are bloody infuriating because mm. they never seem to get filled properly. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure that was the correct answer, but that's what I think. I do think there's a holy grail out there, and I do think that it's worth working towards. I think one thing of the, the, the practicality of actually having everyone in the same building is one of the big challenges of actually yeah. doing that, yeah. and the fact that you guys are happy enough to see anyone from around the country. They'll come here, they'll have a bike fit for two, three hours, and then they'll go back to Scotland or whatever, right? Yeah. Then if you're saying you need physical therapy and you've got to come for six sessions here, they're not able to do that, you know what I mean? Um, so, so part of it, I think, is geography. Part of it is also as the consumer is coming in for a bike fit, they quite often just so focused in on having a bike fit. If you, even with all your experience in the world and you can clearly see they need some physical therapy, they're not going to be into it because, you know, um, most of the time they're like, so I just want this bike fit and I'm not really, you know, and you might be recommending a chiropractor and then they have some bad experience previously with a chiropractor and they're just not going to do that either, you know. So it's, there's a lot of these consumer-driven sort of challenges of like, well, I only want this, you know, um, or, you know, some people coming in and seeing me, they've got back pain, they've got obvious problems with their bike fit, but they're like, ah, oh, no, 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 I'm a macro absorber, I'm not going to listen to anything, and I'm just going to press on commuting on this bike that doesn't fit me, you know, so there's, there's, there's all of those challenges. Um, but I'm super rigid, like, so when a client says to me, you know, if I look, if I put them on the table, on the plinth there, and test some ranges, and I find something which is a, is a, which is a concern, yeah. and they say to me, well, you know, so I'm tight in my lateral rotators, can you not suggest some stretches for lateral rotators? So it's absolutely not. Mm. Absolutely not. No. That's Why not. would you not, though? Because, because it's not my job to. It's not, I know enough to be dangerous. So, I know, I know too much. You know, so, yeah. I can, so, go and see somebody whose job it is to assess ranges, and then set some targets, and then give specific stretches, bespoke stretches to that person, some exercises and tests that support them through the process. If you're not going to hold their hand through the process, don't grab hold of their hand. No, no. And so I never, I never, I don't even go there. It's like absolutely not. I, I know enough to really mislead you. Um, so if you, if you want to, I've said you're tight in your lateral rotators. I do think that this is causing pelvic instability, whatever it's causing, or there's poss- a possible link in there. 
You know, it's take some time, spend some money, go and get this done properly. I'm mean, not properly. Fine. So if that if that's the case, then so there's very little room in a bike fitter's uh, work to have a physio, physical therapist on site or on hand uh, because you're just working with what you have in front of you. That's right. And so it does beg the question, do you actually need physical therapists or do, do we even need this integration that we're trying to, trying to achieve that you, you is do. so difficult to find? You need it for two reasons. You need it, to, you need it for two reasons. One, to support the client. They need support. It needs to be easy for them to move, walk out the studio, know what they've got to do, and then walk in to see Craig or walk in to see somebody else. And the second reason is because there's knowledge gaps. We need so, and the only way to fill these knowledge gaps is to work together. There's no other way to do it. So you know, conferences are great, symposiums are great, you know, all different training. You know, I mean, I don't know about you, Craig, but I'm addicted to courses. Someone's doing, a, someone invites me to a lecture, I'm there. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm an addict to these things. But, but you can only take so much away. You know, but then when you work with someone in a clinical environment, that's, I think, where real magic happens. It really does. And I, and I, and I think that's why there needs to be a commitment from both sides to work together to understand what's going on with somebody. Otherwise, what happens is I give you a theory. I think this might be going on. And somebody, Craig, comes and goes, Oh, no, 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 I don't, don't think you can say that. And it's, and I'm wrong. And I, you know, and, and that's a risk. And I think the only way to stop that is to have somebody else's qualified opinion. And that, it's almost like everyone's first meeting of a bike fitter should be a sit down with a physio, chiro, and a bike fitter, and having an open roundtable discussion. And say, right, present your case, you know, uh, or what's wrong. You have a bit of a screen of them, and then the decision is made collectively to say you need six weeks of this before I even get activated, right? Correct. And then, or the other person then goes, well, no, look, actually, he's functioning pretty good at the moment. Um, he's obviously just got a completely wrong setup. Over to you. He doesn't even need me, you know. But that doesn't really happen, does it? Um, no. And, and the thing is, so let's look at Guy's situation because he's here now. When Guy was in the midst of his recent health crisis he wasn't actually functional on a bike so it wouldn't have been a bike fitter's responsibility but let's assume yeah. he was a bit functional on his bike and he came in and went I need a bike fit it's not working anymore uh, you know I would have been totally out of my depth with him yeah. you know I would have had all I, the only insight I would have had is I need more insight <laughs> you know which is a, I would, you know and I could have concocted loads of theories you know, it, actually, he needed me. He needed you. He might be needing somebody else. Like he still does need someone else. And in fact, like even with the depth of knowledge I have about everything, we worked through a few things with him. But he's still got more going on. And yeah. it's not that often that you have three layers of challenge to work through. But that's exactly what he's got going on. So yeah. it's not that usual. You're correct. But it does happen. I've got you know three or four clients on the go at the moment who are kind of similar le- similar levels of complexity to Guy. And I need more help. I'm, I'm, I'm you know, they, I need insight. Yeah. And I'll, I'll offer an opinion, but it's, I'm not, it's not a diagnosis. It's an opinion. Yeah. And that's why I think working, getting into the habit of, of working with each other stops what you said, which I think is a really good point, cookie cutter, you know, where I, I keep seeing this. So the next person comes in, cognitive bias, or you've got that as well. It's like, hold on, hold on. Maybe they haven't got lazy glutes. Maybe they haven't. Do you know what I mean? And I think mm-hmm. we all need to be arrested from that yeah. decline. All yeah. of us. Yeah. You know, it's a rainy Thursday in November and I'm having a great morning. Someone come and slap me, please. Do you know what I mean? It's, <laughs> and I think that's where working together can really help us with that. Um, 
Well, look, I'm glad you writing the book has restarted this conversation. Yeah. It began back in the symposium ages ago anyway. Yeah, so, 10 years um, ago. And thanks for taking the time to have this conversation. Um, and may well it continue on, um, you know, both in the fitting room and the Pearson's shop and in the Cairo London clinics. So um, thanks for your time today, Jed. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you very much. 